Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Progress City Radio Hour in our town hall again. Second episode in a row, I'm joined here with my brother, Michael Crawford. Michael, uh, welcome back to the town hall. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be back. Happy to have another town hall in the in the bucket, ready to go. That's right. Yeah, and we're uh, continuing where we left off last episode uh, with a great guest here in Davey Fighting Michael. I have enjoyed hearing you talk with him. You know, another guest with decades and decades of experience on some of our favorite attractions. Absolutely. And one of those people that, you know, gosh, we talked to him over the course of two episodes for about four hours, but it's still, you still get the feeling that there's so much more that could be said. There's so, so many more stories to be told because he worked on so many things and so many exciting things. You know, last time we talked a lot about the Epcot shows he worked on. If you miss those, you should go back and listen to those. But, you know, we had Country Bears left to go, so we've got that to talk about and all sorts of other things. That's right, yeah. I mean, you can bet that almost any show that came along, he had some kind of hand in that, that had audio animatronics in it, at least, and uh, and some work outside of Disney as well. So absolutely, uh, a lot of great stuff, yeah. Yeah, he's done a, done a lot of stuff uh, since his Disney time in film and in teaching and more animatronic stuff and has sort of uh, been all over and so really excited to see you know what he gets up to next because it's all interesting that's right all right well let's jump into this we'll pick up where we left off and hear michael's interview with davy fighting Well, one of the things when I said I was going to talk to you that people really, I had multiple people contact me about that they wanted to hear about were the Country Bear shows that you worked on. Uh, people really wanted to hear about that. So could you tell us how, I guess it was the Christmas show came first that you worked Christmas on? The show, yeah, came first. Yeah, how did that come about? What happened is I was an animator at Epcot and I was working on American Adventure, the Energy Pavilion. And World of Motion and some weird computer show that talked about Dax Central that I didn't like. But American Adventure, I did like. But after I was all done, they sent me to Tokyo and I did, it was kind of like Hall of Presidents for the Japanese little animatronic show. Mm -hmm. um, and it was all in Japanese. But after I was done with that, I returned back to California and um, I didn't have any work and they were laying everybody off. And I was kind of worried about losing my job because there was no work in the company anywhere. Yeah. Um, both Tokyo was done, Epcot was done. Um, and Rick Rothschild, who I worked with, he was the director on American Adventure. He, um, he and I were talking. I said, hey, I, I want to get involved in creative and create some of my own, you know, shows. And how do I get started? And he said, well, you're really good with animatronics. And they're looking for a bear band show uh, based on a Christmas show. Why don't you um, storyboard it? You know how to storyboard and sketch. And why don't you storyboard it out and, and pitch it? And he said, nobody else wants to do it. Why don't you take it? And I said, uh, great, I'll try it. I'll give it a shot. And I went and talked to my manager, Jack Taylor. And he was the manager of the animation department. And um, 
He said, sure. He didn't have any work for me either. So he was looking for something. And um, so I started working on it. I started storyboarding, doing color sketches. I'd gone down to Disneyland, took photographs of um, the bears and, you know, tried to learn the show really well. And, and as I progressed on this, Jack kept coming in and checking on my work. And Mike Sprout was the other animator in our department. He was in the same office with me. And Jack said, hey, why don't you have Mike help you? He's a really good writer and he's good at gags. And I knew Mike really well. I mean, we shared the same office and we're both animators, but um, I never worked with him before as a, as a writer, you know, as him as a writer and me as the storyboard artist. But, you know, I said, sure, why not? And we started working on it and, and it just worked out great. We kind of worked well as a team. And we got it all done. We got the script written. We got all the songs picked. We did all the artwork. And we got to meet with Randy Bright and pitch it to him. And he loved the show. He thought the show was great. You know, he said, but I don't want to do a Christmas show. I want to do another show because Christmas show only lasts four to six weeks. And we need a show that lasts six months or longer, you know. And... um because it's not worth putting all that money into it to do this whole show that only lasts six weeks. It's not profitable. And we kind of understood his point, but we liked the Christmas show. We really were impressed with it, and and we wanted to do it. So he says, well, go back up to your offices. Why don't you guys move over here to the WDI building, and I'll work with you. And you guys, I want you to come up with 10 ideas for 10 new shows for the Country Bear Jamboree. And we go, 10 ideas are you crazy. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's a lot of work. Yeah. And he said, no, no, come, come up with 10 ideas, storyboard them all out, and um, pitch it to me, and then I'll pick which one I like. And I thought, oh, man, okay. So we spent an entire year doing all these illustrations and coming up with concepts and all these different ways of doing it. And he kept telling us, we wanted to add the Christmas show as one of those 10. He kept saying, no, I don't want the Christmas show. I don't want that. And it makes me think that he just really wanted to be involved creatively and kind of drag this out. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I also understand this point about, you know, a show that lasts longer, you know, that's worth spending the money on. But right. so we um, we finally, after a year, we did all these shows. I had to do color illustrations of each character in their costume. And some of the shows were terrible that didn't make sense. And some of them were really liked. And our favorite show was kind of the show about the Academy Awards uh, or, or the Country country Awards Greatest Hits, you know. And um, that way we could use any country song um, that was out there and they could all work in the show. So we had a really good selection of country songs and um, uh, that's the one we wanted. Well, we pitched all of them. Randy didn't like that one, <laughs> right? But instead he goes, well, he goes, well, actually, he said, you know, I like all 10 of them. I can't decide. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. This is Randy, he said. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick one drawing from each of the 10 shows, and which he did. He pulled them off the board. He says, here, I want you to come up a show with this, with these 10 <laughs> drawings, and come up with a home run name for this show and have it ready by tomorrow, because tomorrow we're pitching it to Walt Disney World and Disneyland executives. Oh, my gosh. 
And I go, it's noon. We only have four hours to do this. What? <laughs> so that's what we did. We went up to our, my office and Mike and I tried to hash it out and come up with a, a name and make sense of it. And we couldn't make sense of it at all. It, it just, it was the worst of all the shows we thought. But the artwork looked great, <laughs> but they didn't go together. So the next day, all these executives showed up. They're all in a coat and tie. We'd never met them before, really. Um, they knew who I was because of programming Epcot stuff. Anyway, they were there, and the whole room was full. There must have been 15, 20 executives there um, from every branch. And uh, we pitched the show to them. I mostly did the pitching, and um, it didn't make any sense to me. But anyway, I tried. And nobody laughed. I mean, everybody was just like a, a, a still robot or something. <laughs> just no response, no reaction. And then one of the executives goes, well, this is real nice and you guys did a really nice job, but what we're really looking for is a Christmas show. <laughs> and we're like, our eyes just like dropped. It's like, what? A Christmas show? It's like, and Brady jumps up and goes, Hey, the guys have a Christmas show. They have it upstairs. I'll tell you what. Why don't you guys, executives, all have lunch? And after lunch, the guys will run upstairs and, and get the Christmas show and pitch it to you. And um, that's what happened. We went upstairs and we got the show. We came down. We pitched it to them. And they all just cracked up laughing. They loved the show. They totally got into it. It was like a completely different crowd. And uh, they go, we love it. They they sold it right there. They're everybody agreed to do it. Disneyland, Disney World, and um, it was sold. So then we had to go make it. And Randy was really proud of us. And we walked back to our offices, saying, "Oh my God, we wasted a whole year on this. <laughs> it was ready to go a year ago." Right? How frustrating. But anyway, we you know we still had our jobs. We were still working, so we're, a lot of other people got laid off. So I guess in a way it was still good. But so then we had to build it. Well, it shows your uh, instincts were good right out of the gate, since the first thing you thought of was the thing that they wanted all along. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, Rick Rothschild gave us that advice. And so that's so uh, funny. Well, how do you go putting together an update for a show like that uh, that's already an established show? How do you go about that process? Well, we were kind of new at this. So we yeah. No, right? But but we were really familiar with all the shows at Epcot in Tokyo, and we worked on all of them. So, And Mike and I had made animated films on our own, so we knew story. And Mike actually could storyboard and draw well, but... Um, I was a better artist, so he wanted me to do all the drawing. He was a better writer, and I wanted him to do the writing. Um, so that worked out great. So we just started working on it and developing it. And surprisingly, everybody in the company wanted to work on a show with us because nobody had a job. You know, right. you know, they, there wasn't anything going on. So suddenly we were helping to employ a whole bunch of people there. Yeah. So everybody suddenly liked us, you know, and they'd want to have lunch with us and say, hey, can I get on your show? You know, I need hours to put down on my timesheet. But then we brought in George Wilkins, who Mike and I really didn't know. I'd seen him, you know, around the studio walking around, but we never worked with him, really. And George turned out to be like the most perfect 
guy for you know the music end of it. He really knew the music, and he was doing all the music for Disney at Epcot for all the shows, mm-hmm. all the background music and so forth. But this was a little different. This was, you know, we had to create country bear songs, right? And a whole show together with music for everything. And we had to write some new songs. So, uh, but as a team, we started working out pretty good. And they kept coming up with ideas and gags as I redid the illustrations and added gags in and costumes. Um, And I had to illustrate all the costumes in color and the costume people would come up and look at it. And we get feedback back and forth on how to do it. And the costume people, by the way, were fantastic at Disneyland. Wow. <laughs> really impressive. You know, they're so cooperative, so helpful. And you don't realize how bad you need them until you're actually working on a show. And you start running into all these kind of problems uh, that can come up with a costume. Because uh, animatronics can actually rip a costume apart and damage it really fast if you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, costumes have, um, we would have to invent these corsets that would go in the elbow here or around the waist where the butyrate, they called it, or it's like a big plexiglass, clear plexiglass that's a shell of the body. As the movements move, it's also moving those clothes and the clothes can bind up inside the elbow or inside the wrist or around the stomach or the waist um, or underneath the armpit. So you had to make these little corsets, this little netting stuff to keep the clothes from going down deep inside and and catching and tearing, as well as it would change the whole shape of the costume if you weren't careful. That's interesting. Things like that, I would imagine, are things that people never really think of, but it takes a lot to go into even dressing, dressing the animatronics. Yeah, we also had the fur on the on the bears as well. So the bears were fully covered with fur because the the original show was all fur and there's very little costume. So when you add the fur and the costume, it adds a lot of weight. And as you add more weight, it restricts the movement of the functions as you try and animate it. So things can really look like they're really slowing down and it's actually the weight and um, the restriction of the costume and the fur fighting against you. So you have to keep in mind how heavy that costume is, or if you're adding a prop or if you're adding a guitar, you know, what can happen, what what it'll do. And because you have to make sure it lasts 16 hours a day, seven days a week for a year or years. Right. And that's pretty hard to do. You know, it's hard to even get a car to do that. So that's uh, true. yeah. Well, how do you at the time? I would imagine today programming multiple variations of a show would be much easier to swap in and out than it was back then. What was the process back then for, from a programming standpoint for swapping out a show like that? Um, well, it had never been done before. So that was one problem. And that was one of the reasons they gave me the job because I knew so much about the animation and was really familiar with it. And we had the right department to do that, right? To figure that out. Um, so the way Waitha Rogers and um, Bill Justice, who were the animators on the original show, and Waitha was my boss, and he was like the, the first person dealing with the animatronics back in the early days. Um, they had programmed the first bear show, but you know, the, 
the tools they had were really limited. They had an Anacon like mine, a different color, but it they didn't have the computer software like um, we had at that time. And um, for us, we had a big giant, what was called Big Blue, it was an IBM computer that took up a whole room and they had to have it ship, shipped in and with a crane, drop it down in the basement at Bear Band just for us to do the work. Wow. As well as we had to figure out how to then transfer um, the original Bear show so it can also be on DAX and be its own complete show. So it's trying to figure that all out. All those tools had to be switched over at some point. Um, and we were also planning ahead for future bear shows on how to do it. So, and all the trees and all the sets, uh, all the props, some of the musical instruments, they all had to be swapped out. All the roll drops that rolled down in the background, mm -hmm. they had to be swapped out for each show. And everything then had to be labeled so that you knew exactly where to put it back next year and exactly what went with what show. And we had to keep in mind, you know, how can we use the same instruments or the some of the same stuff from the first show to the second show so we don't spend a lot of money and time trying to, you know, reinvent it. So most of the instruments we kept the same. Oh, yeah, that, well, that would make sense. So... I, I mean, I know, I remember when this, when this happened, when this show came out and it, you know, it was from an audience perspective, at least audience loved it. It was a big hit. It's something people still talk about today. How'd the park feel about it? Was it a success with the park? Yeah, I think so. I think the park really liked it. You know, it puts you in the Christmas mood. And I think the Christmas show they liked better than the original show. Most of the people... Most people had already seen the original several times. Mm -hmm. So the Christmas show really kind of lightened things up. It was a great idea to, you know, promote the Christmas season because that's when they get a lot of their their fans and audience coming into the park. Um, and, you know, there was something Christmassy to do rather than just see the Christmas parade. Right, right. Maintenance was a little worried and we were concerned about because there's a lot of work for them to swap things out. There's a few things that we did differently. Like Wendell, we gave him instead of his little guitar um, instrument, we put a shotgun in his hand. Right. There's a whole different prop, but on top of that, there has to be wiring that goes up there to triggers a light and a little smoke effect. So it looks like his shotgun goes off. Things like that. So you had to swap that out, but yet it make it work for both shows. And we had a penguin and an ice cube. Uh, and they kept getting on our case to say, we wanted a, a, a animatronic penguin originally, where it actually moved. And Mike came up with this idea of let's turn Shaker into a polar bear. And we'll just change out his fur, put on a white fur, and um, it'll all work. And then to make the gag and the joke there, let's put a little penguin next to him, and then Jake would sing to the penguin. Well, they said, well, we're not going to let you have the money for a penguin. So we said, well, can, how about this? How about if we put the penguin in a block of ice, and you just give us one function, and then we'll just shake the penguin in the ice cube? <laughs> they said, okay, you can have one function. <laughs> so they let us have that. And actually, it was a funnier gag. I actually liked it better in the Ice Cube because it was just funnier. Yeah. 
And, um, but I remember that the, the shaker as a polar bear, we thought was a great idea. But then we, when we put show lights on him and I stood out in the audience, his fur looked terrible. He just looked really bright white. So I had to go get a can of light blue spray paint and paint, paint shadows on the fur everywhere. <laughs> Uh, try and tone him down so he didn't quite look too bright white because it was just over the top and then suddenly he looked like a polar bear again that's interesting then mike mike sprout he was always looking at my work analyzing it for gags and stuff and we would put clothes on you know design clothes in some cases we would have a costume where it was just a shirt but no pants and mike would go it looks like he doesn't have pants on it's like <laughs> he's nude it's like we can't do that he has no pants on so a lot of costumes got switched over so uh because of that whole pant problem where it looked like they were nude uh -huh. if you a shirt and jacket on so like shaker we switched his idea and we just put a scarf around him and then earmuffs to make it a little funnier uh, and that's why that got switched over. And besides, we wanted to see all white fur, you know, the polar bear look. But um, I forgot the, the guy doing the fiddle, his name. He has a blue uh, sweater on with deer on it. Mm -hmm. Here's one of them that doesn't have pants. And I said, that's okay. His fiddle's in front of him so that people can't see that he doesn't have pants on. But <laughs> it is, if you study it, you go, wait a second. He doesn't have pants on. What's going on here? So, the, the things you have to take into consideration it's yeah there's a lot of it when we finished the christmas show we got all done and everything was edited and the weird thing is mike sprout and i we were the animators for the company so we couldn't call up somebody else to do the animation we we're already writing and directing and creating the show that was a full-time job but we we're the only animators available so we had to animate it and we already knew what we wanted. So we thought, you know, no problem. We'll split it 50 50. You take 12 hours, I'll take the other 12 hour shift. We'll, we'll work 24 hours. And uh, sometimes we only worked eight hours, but uh, that's how it worked. And, and I was still real busy doing um, art direction as the roll drops are being painted and the costumes were being made. I constantly had meetings with everybody on it. And, and they would bring the costumes in and they would dress them and, and ask my opinion and we'd have to make changes or add snaps or add corsets or little things to uh, make sure everything worked right. Um, as well as props. Sometimes you'd get a prop and we'd have to figure out a way to fasten it or attach it or it didn't work with show lights or we'd have to repaint it or do something different. Uh, but that was always going on. And then I would do my other shift of animating. Mm. So it was a, it was a two person job every day, but, um, animation, we really knew what we we're doing. We didn't really have a problem with that, but before we could start, we had to tune, retune every single function of every single figure and make sure it's called the gain, the offset and the stroke. And these are little adjustments to tune exactly um, the actuator, uh, how far they can move left and right, what they call offset or stroke from one end to the other, and how fast they can go is the gain. And you want those tuned just right. It's like tuning a car, because if you don't tune it right and you go to animate, it 
won't play back correctly. And uh, 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 you're not going to get as much speed in motion as well as the anatomy can look off. So that has to be done exactly correctly, but it's real time consuming. And I noticed that over the years, the old show got really off because some of the maintenance guys, some were good at it and some weren't, you know, and some rushed and didn't tune it quite right. And it, it they would get off. And, and when they're off, it makes anatomy look off or it makes the figure look like it's hardly moving or it's going too slow and real sluggish. And that's because those cards are, are not tuned correctly or, or maybe not working at all. The bears are hydraulic, most of the functions. And a few of the functions like eye blinks or something simple, fingers or uh, pneumatic, which are air functions, which is 80 pounds of pressure and it's 500 pounds of pressure for oil. But what happens is when you're dealing with oil figure, it's real easy for you to get an oil leak as you programming. And you can cut a line and break a line or pop it off as you start animating and, and moving it. And I'm real picky about the animation, about the quality and making sure everything's very exact, very lifelike, as, and get as much out of it as you can. But because I'm trying to get more out of it, it means there's a chance you're pulling on those oil cables and stretching them a little further than they meant to go in the past, and you can break one. And right. Several times we broke lines and you'd get, you know, oil dripping all over the costume and the fur and all over the floor. You got to shut everything down. You got to call up the costume ladies to come out and take off the costume and the fur. Then you got to call maintenance to come take the whole figure apart, fix the function. And you got to call a costume to come back, put the fur back on in a, in a, a second a backup costume on. And all the, all the figures had backup costumes, you know, it, sometimes three, uh, just for this type of problem, if something tore or if there was an oil leak. Uh, so uh, we were constantly cause, calling maintenance and the costume ladies for help. Uh, they didn't want us taking the costumes and fur off. Uh, they want to make sure they did it. So, you know, that's their job. That's their area. It's kind of a, a union type thing, but you know we didn't want to cross people's territory. But you ran into problems like that quite often. Um, when uh, I was going to say, when we got all done with the show, it was all edited. Um, it was all recorded, edited. Everything was all together. We're ready to program. And uh, I'm sorry, we had all the programming done and we were ready to open the next day for the public. And um, so before we showed it to the public and have a grand opening, Marty Sklar and Randy Bright came down to look at it with a few other people and give us their opinion. They want to see the show all complete, which they should. That, that makes sense. But for some reason, after he showed the show, is. Out of nowhere, Randy Bright did not like liver lips. He didn't like he liver lips was in a doing type of Elvis type Presley song, mm -hmm. um, in a red Santa Santa Claus type um, sequence outfit, and playing a, a Christmas tree guitar. And it, I designed this Christmas tree guitar because I didn't want a normal Fender guitar because uh, it looked too brand new and everybody who played guitar was, oh, that's just a Fender guitar. They just bought it at the store. 
So I wanted to do something unique and different. So I had him turn it into a Christmas tree guitar, which nobody had seen before. Right. Um, and just to make it another gag, make it a little funnier, um, just so people will laugh. Well, Randy didn't like it. And he says, well, you can't have an electric guitar because because bears can't play electric guitar. They don't know how. So you can't have electric guitar. And we're going, wait a second. He was playing an acoustic guitar before on the old show. Big Al's playing an acoustic guitar. Henry's playing an acoustic guitar. The five bear rugs are all playing instruments. Like, come on. Yes, but this is an electric guitar. They can't play electric guitars. I said, Randy, I play guitar. It's the same thing. It's the same chords. It's exactly the same way. Well, anyway, we argued about it. And this is one of the things about creativity is like we have creative ideas. And sometimes you run in buttheads with ideas. And sometimes you wonder, like, what is it do they really not like? And, and uh, what's the issue here? Because you're every now and you just run with creative decisions that uh, people just don't agree upon. And this was one of them. Well, Marty, fortunately, was there. And Marty was on our side, we could tell <laughs> Because he liked it. So Marty goes, hey, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's bring in a whole group of audience for the first time to see the show. And we'll bring them in right now, watch the show. And we'll, I'll ask them afterwards, uh, you know, what they liked about the show. And if they don't like that electric guitar, we'll take it out. But if they <laughs> do like it, we'll keep it. Right? So we brought in a real audience, our first time with an audience. And we're all sitting there kind of nervous watching it. And people are laughing in the right place. They're really enjoying it. They're getting into it. And um, they're just really enjoying the show. And then afterwards, Marty asked them, well, what was it, your favorite thing about the show? And several people said, oh, we loved the Elvis character with the, with the Christmas tree guitar. Oh, that was awesome. We loved that. That was our best figure. You know, that they really liked it. And that was all they talked about. They didn't talk about any of the other bears. And Marty goes, well, there you go, guitar staying. And the audience didn't understand what was going on. But anyway, so Randy got really mad. He kind of bounced out of the theater. He didn't talk to us for a while. And we got to keep the guitar. So, And it's funny because that guitar is one of the memorable. I know now the, you know, whenever the archives has a show, they always have one of, one of those guitars that they took out of Disneyland. And they'll have that guitar on display and whenever they have some sort of fan event or something. So the guitar obviously stuck around. Well, that's good. I mean, maybe we can get, you know, Paul McCartney or somebody to sign it. I, I don't know. <laughs> That'd be good. It's so funny to find yourself having an argument over whether or not the singing, talking bears could play an electric guitar. That's Those are conversations you don't have every day. We ran into stuff like that quite often. I mean... It's it just you know, one of the things you learn directing and being involved in a show like this. The the crews building the props and the roll drops and things like that. Normally we got along great. Um, Exitensio and Sam McKinn helped us. I had way too much on my plate besides animating. I had to do all this artwork and create everything. So I, I didn't have time to do real finished uh, full color illustrations for the roll drops. Um, or for uh, the slideshow. So what I did is I would just do a pencil sketch and say, here's what I'm thinking, you know, and here's the story. And I'd go over it with Mike and we we brainstorm back and forth. And then um, Marty said, hey, why don't you have Exitensio 
do finished runs of this because you don't have time. And he had done the original show slideshow. So he already knew how to do it and have Sam McKinn do the roll drops um, as well as um, a painting of what the sets look like. I said, okay, that works great for me. So, um, and there, and they sat right next to me, the office right next door. So it was almost easy. I could just yell out my door, hey, Sam, come over here for a second. I need you to do this. And uh, so they did a fantastic job. I thought, oh my God, these guys draw so much better than me. It's like, oh, this is embarrassing. They were so good. And, you know, they didn't complain anything. They just like looked at my goofy, pencil drawing said, yeah, I think I understand what you want. <laughs> and they would go do it. And they would just show, just make me look terrible in comparison. They, they were just so good, both of them. Yeah, it's hard to beat those guys. So they were they were good to work with then. Yeah, and you know, they're just smiling and happy and just, yeah, no problem. And, uh, and, and we used them on the vacation show too, because of it. The only problem I ran into is sometimes we, we'd run into a problem, like I remember the trees sometimes didn't fit. We we're trying to put them where the original trees were because the trees were a different shape because the Christmas one had snow on it. We, we couldn't use the, the, the previous trees and we wanted something different to feel like Christmas. And the vacation show had a different type of tree. Um, and we realized they, they bumped into the um, stage the stage rolling in and out and we had to cut some of it off and I, I i went to tell sam hey you know i gotta take this out of the drawing and he got really mad at me he's like well wait wait the drawing's all done it's like no it's like no you don't understand the stage hits it i can't fit it in i gotta cut some of it off but then i thought why am i taking out the drawing i'll just tell him just cut it off right here this is <laughs> yeah right I don't need to have them redraw the painting. How stupid of me. So I just told him, no, never mind. You don't have to do it. I'll just tell him. So he did the backdrops and you said X did the, like the slides when they had the little, little slideshow thing. Right. Yeah. He did all the slides and, uh, wow. Those were so much fun. Those are really well done. And, um, he, he, he really plussed it, but I remember we were doing the roll drop for Wendell that has the moose on it. Mm -hmm. And, um, we it originally didn't have a moose in it, and um, I first did a sketch and with the ice breaking. So the, the the story of the song is that he fell in the ice, right? And Mike came, typical Mike. He was always looking for gags to do, and he says, "Hey man, why don't why don't you just put a moose in there that's all frozen, covered in snow?" And uh, I said, well, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. And so I had to redo the drawing, and I put this moose in. And he goes, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. So they then did a full-color painting of it. Sam did, I think it was. And then from that, they took it down to Paramount Studios, and they actually blew it up, you know, on as a big roll drop. And then I'd have to go over and art direct it. It's, it's weird that they would take a little painting that's only, what, two feet wide? Yeah. And they brought it into this giant roll drop that came out of the screen, out of the ceiling, and yet it was exactly the same. That's amazing. Yeah, it uh, it was fun to see those being created. Yeah, M Mike Sprout was just always looking for gags, something funny, you know? So he was really good at that and just spotting little things. And it might be the lyrics, rewriting the lyrics. 
And uh, other times it's just, you know, with Rufus was uh, one of the best examples of coming up with gags. Because again, we couldn't have any money for a new character. And we both came up with this idea of Rufus and we were playing around with it. And working in animatronics, you're always looking for ways to get free animation. And what I mean by free, that's what we called it. It could be just, you know, the, the girls holding a sleigh bell and the sleigh bell just rocks back and forth freely. Mm-hmm. That's free animation. You don't have an actuator moving it. It's just their hand. Or, you know, one of the characters has a scarf on them or something's hanging down from um, his hat and his hat is moving around. But with Rufus, we we're going to do free animation by doing it all with sound effects. And all we had to do was add a few speakers up where the lighting was up above the audience. So we could create this traveling sound and we would just do sound effects of Rufus in the dark, pounding his feet down and moaning and grunting as he acted like this bear trying to take care of the lighting. And it worked really well. And the audience, you know, it was like, felt like Rufus was really above you, really working because you could hear him. And then we continued that on with um, Wendell and his shotgun. And when he shot his shotgun, we then had it ricochet all around the room, um, turning off different speakers in the room. So it felt like it, you know, ricocheted off different lights and things like that. And we did that in his song. And we also, we made it even a bigger effect uh, with sound, you know, breaking glass and all kinds of things in uh, the finale. So, uh, you know, that was a great way to just get free stuff out of here. Yeah. Well, Rufus was so much fun. I remember at the time as a kid, it kind of grew the universe of the show, if that makes any sense. It just kind yeah. of expanded it beyond just what was happening on stage, made it feel like like this was a real world they they had going on there backstage, all these characters and everything. I, I always thought it was a really fun addition. One little trick we had with Rufus is that it, another gag might came up with this is the light came on on Big Al instead of Henry. Mm-hmm. You know, Rufus messed up, right? Right. But I, I learned, I was programming that light and I came up with this light effect where it kind of, the light actually animates and you could animate it. But if you watch it, sometimes those slides will kind of grow and then shrink down mm-hmm. rather than just be a light turning on and off. And then we then realized, oh, that's pretty cool. We added this buzz sound as if it was like almost electrical short to the light effect on top of it. So it was like an old fashioned light, you know, buzzing out, crying out. It was a nice little effect. I don't know if people catch that because it's so subtle. And then the light switches over to Henry and and, and continue on with the show. But we're always looking for little tiny things like that, just to plus it. Well, I think that came across in the show that there's so many gags that Aside from what it, you know, what was in the songs, what was in the dialogue, stuff in the backgrounds, like you were talking about, stuff in the decorations of the theater, like how they, how you decorated the heads on the wall, that was always fun. Oh, um, I got a little story about the heads, by the way, is we put those lights on, right, and um, the Christmas lights, and this whole decoration. We we're trying to make it funny, is when you looked up there, you know, with um, the deer with a red nose light bulb. Mm-hmm. And Melvin being this stupid, you know, moose. Um, but we realized that the lights aren't plugged in. 
And I thought, oh, well, that just looks weird. It's like, how do you, how are the lights working when they're not plugged in? And so I had to have the prop department go over and make a phony light socket. And we glued it onto the wall as if it really existed. But we had to make it much bigger than normal so that it would read to the audience. Then we ran the cord over there and made it look like it was plugged into it, but it actually isn't a real light uh, light socket. And um, uh, it's just a little tiny little thing that, that I don't know if people even noticed or, or caught it, but it looked really wrong when there wasn't one there. But as yeah. soon as you put it on the wall and plugged it in, it's, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it's the things you would notice if it wasn't there, but it, it just feels right. That's funny. Well, did you have any other favorite moment, favorite bits from that show? You know, George Wilkins was our musician, and um, he was so really good. But what was amazing working with him is he was still living in the 60s the whole time we were working with him. He just had the the vibe and all the, the lingo of the 60s. Of, he would say groovy all the time and... <laughs> And hip, and I can't remember all the '60s words he used, but that's all he would say, and you could really recognize it all the time. Um, you know, oh yeah, man, that's really hip, that's really groovy, and he'd always respond with these really funky '60s sound words. <laughs> it's like he hadn't grown out of it; he hadn't moved to the '80s yet. Uh, but it was hilarious, and we just loved being around him, just hearing all those you know, silly comments he came up with. But when we got onto the vacation show and we were really depressed that we didn't want to do the vacation show. Oh, yeah. And and George came into my office, you know, and is like, Mike and I were really down. We didn't want to work on it. He goes, come on. And he got all fired up. So like, come on, guys, we'll make it work. We'll find a way. We'll make it work. And he just kept saying that. It's like he, he didn't want to give up, but Mike and I did. And, and, and he talked us into it. Well, why didn't you? Uh, why didn't you want to do the vacation show? I, I don't know if it's a good story or not. I might go to Disney jail for this, but <laughs> I, Mike, and I were really burnt out after the first show, and part of it was because we had to create the show, but then we had to animate the show and do night shift and day shift. But then we had to do the second show at Disneyland and work on that for a couple weeks. Because all of that had to fit, all the costumes, we had to retune all the figures. Um, we had to make sure the roll drops are in and everything worked properly. And we had a few conflicts where the bears didn't quite sync up right. Um, they they didn't work exactly the same, so we had to, to work around it. So they ran off the same program. And then from there, we had to fly to Florida and do the show there. And spend several weeks, you know, setting up there. And then we had to go to Tokyo and stuff in Tokyo. So we, we were just so burnt out on bears. We just didn't want to do anymore. And we came back to California. We needed a vacation get away. And um, we come back to the office and Randy calls us down in his office and say, you guys did a home run. That was a great show. Everybody loves the Christmas show. It was fantastic. I want you to do another show. You know, get to work on it. And he's going, well, what do you mean another show? We're done. <laughs> it's like, no, no. You guys, we got another show. So we know they'll buy it. They'll give us some money. You know, come up with a show that'll last for six months. But this time I want you to come up with 10 ideas and 10 different ways to do 
another show that lasts six months. And I go, 10 more shows. Oh my God. He says, don't worry. I'll just pick which one I want. And he's like, he, he pulled this on us before on the Christmas show, 10 shows. So we did not want to do it. I mean, Mike and I, you know, we had to keep our job and that would keep us employed, but we, we just didn't want to work on bears anymore. You know, we were fed up with it. And it was George Wilkins who kept trying to talk us into it. George wanted to keep going. But George wanted to keep his job, too, because he didn't have any other work. So he kept saying, yeah, come on, guys, we'll make it work. Come on. You know, I was like, so we worked on 10 more shows. Right. And um, we had to then put all these shows together. I had to do all this artwork and uh, full color illustrations of all the characters. I didn't storyboard and do as much storyboarding this time. I just basically did nice watercolors of each character and um and, and i learned my mistake on the christmas show compared to the vacation show is that when i was doing the christmas show i was using photographs of the bear that, that i took as reference to draw from and i didn't even know that i could go down to the morgue just down the stairs over to the morgue and check out the original mark davis drawings for free and just use them at my desk as a reference to, to go by and it's like nobody told me I could do that and somebody had mentioned it to me yeah yeah just go down there and check them out and you know it's like you don't have to go to Disneyland and take more pictures and once I checked out his original artwork I got a much better idea what Mark Davis was going for and I could use that so my anatomy of the bears got a lot better my drawings got better of it and uh, we came up with all these ideas and but we couldn't come up with 10 good ideas. We, we we just came up with like a couple bad ideas and thought, well, these are so bad, he'll never go for them. So, you know, we'll just put these on our bad list and we'll have a couple good lists. <laughs> and so we pitched them all to him and, and, and all the ideas. And Randy, it came to the point where one of the, I think the last show or one of the last shows was a vacation show that we pitched. And Randy goes, vacation show, everybody's on vacation. That's a great title. That's a home run. That's exactly what I want. And go, oh, no, that's our that's our worst idea. We don't want to do that. We go, look, Randy, there are no songs about vacation. Nobody writes a country song about vacation. There's zero. You have nothing to go on. He goes, no, 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 you're wrong. Everyone's on vacation when they go to Disneyland. They will love it. It's the perfect title. So he forced us to do that and we were stuck with it and we did not want to do it and then George Wilkins comes back and come on guys hang in there we can do it you know? <laughs> we'll make it work George is like trying to save the day for us but uh oh uh, anyway we were forced to do it and, and that's what happened well and it happened you you got it done yeah somehow I think we hated each other by the end or we just hated bears <laughs> It's just too many bear shows. <laughs> too many bear shows in a row, not to mention the ones that never got built. Yeah. I don't know where all that artwork is, but it probably takes up half the morgue. Um, well, what other shows were you were you contemplating? What other things were you thinking about doing? Um, well, the one show we just liked a lot was the one where it was an award show for the best country hits and we could make it look like we're giving awards out to the bears and um i guess academy awards isn't the right word but it's 
best country music awards or something like that. Mm -hmm. Then we would have the whole library of all the country songs. And and that was one of the problems we kept running into. We on vacation show we didn't have country songs to that that would fit, and that's why we ended up with you know the Beach Boys song and and singing in the rain and, and some other stuff. And um, I mean those are good songs and stuff, but it took it way out of the country realm. And we also had Randy then started credit you know putting his two cents in what he want, what songs he wanted and how he wanted the show. So he got a little, like too many directors. Yeah. Uh, kind of interfered a lot. Um, I think it worked much better when just Mike and I and George did it and um, went on our own belief of what was best. It's interesting so. you say that because we've talked in the past on the show about those about the vacation show and uh, talked a bit about how it's noticeable that it has more sort of pop songs, more like you said, singing in the rain, um, the beach boys, things like that. I'd never thought about the fact that it's really because there aren't a lot of country songs. I mean, you had on the road again, which was a good one, um, yeah. but there aren't a lot of country songs you could pull from, I suppose, for, for that theme. There wasn't. We really struggled, you know, just co constantly listening to um, different country songs. We were buying all these records. We were going through <laughs> albums and going through, and, and neither of us were big country fans. I started becoming one the more I got into this, but um, I would love to do the show over today with all the country songs available today to us. Because the, the quality of the songs is so fantastic right now. And you would be able to do a really good country song or a, a country bear show um, with today's songs. But yeah, we were just we were just stuck. It was just a, not a good theme. And uh, trying to stick to that theme made it really difficult. I would imagine so. Yeah, I, uh, I, I sometimes I suggested songs and, and they just didn't fit. But I kind of like... I don't care. It's like, I just, we got to get a song in here. It's like, we got to find something. And, uh, yeah. So we, a lot of times we butt heads over the music for that and, and it created a lot of conflict internally. But it's funny, you know, that show is still memorable for a lot of people and, you know, it still runs over in Tokyo. Yeah. I haven't seen any of the shows for a long time. I guess it's out at Disneyland, right? Yeah, it's out at Disneyland. Yeah. And Disney World runs the original show still, but uh, over in Tokyo, they run all three of them. Uh huh. Yeah. I, and they uh, look great. Well, that's good. There's a couple things that were kind of interesting is the three girls who I really liked, and I, I did the programming for the Christmas show on well, both shows, mm -hmm. three girls, just because I could do a lot more. And I didn't like um, what Waithel and Bill Justin did because what they did is they just copied the animation into all three, just copy and paste. So they did exactly the same thing in the original show, which with you know with the tools they had that probably made sense. But with the new you know big blue computer and the software that we had, I, I could program them individually and make them interact and turn and play to the audience a lot better. Uh, but I remember we 
arguing with the costume ladies a little bit about the length of their outfits on how high I can raise it up. Because I realized the higher I raise it up, the cuter they look. But there is a fine line. It's like, well, Dave, I think you're showing too much. You know, that's, you know, uh, that's inappropriate. <laughs> so we're fighting little issues that you just don't think about. You go, well, wait a second. These are just bears. Like, they didn't have any clothes on in the other shows. Like, why are we making a big deal? Because now they're wearing clothes. Right. But, wow, we really got in a long conversation with these sneaky little girls. How high I could raise their skirt. So, uh, again, the type of conversations you don't have every day in a regular job. How short can the skirt on this bear be? Yeah. And Teddy Barrett was, she, um, she was a, I mean, for the vacation show, uh, or the Christmas show, I mean, we, um, decided to put her on a ski lift, make it look like a ski lift. Right. And cause it was just perfect situation. And then we put, um, you know, skis on her little ski outfit and stuff and made her real cute. And then Mike came up with the idea of let's just break her leg and <laughs> put a cast on her leg and then have all the bears sign it. So uh, another gag Mike came up with that just was funny and silly, but uh, it just added to it. But she, she was, you know, you always had to like not lose their original personalities from the original show. She's this, you know, pretty bear that's very beautiful singer, very sweet and adorable. And you had to keep that. But you still want to come up with something a little funny just to make the audience laugh. So on every every scene or every bear, you look for little things that you could put in there. You know, with Shaker having the penguin, mm-hmm. and, um, um, her with the cast. And Big Al, I didn't have any idea what to do um costume for big owl you just you know i've done all the other bears and he was like my last bear to illustrate and i i couldn't come up with any ideas and i tried a few things and nothing worked i didn't like it and then mike came in one day and he says oh i got it let's make him you know the new year's eve baby um and we'll put him in a big giant diaper and i go mike that's a really stupid idea no i'm not going to do that and he he would leave and then he'd come back in the like that afternoon or the next day he says, I got this idea. Let's have Big Al, you know, as a New Year's baby in a big diaper. I go, Mike, you just told me that idea yesterday. <laughs> he goes, No, I think it'll work. It's like sketch it up. And uh so I finally gave up and I listened to him and I did a sketch of it and colored it all in. And I hated drawing it. I didn't like it. And then we showed it to Randy. We showed it to all people at work. It's like everybody liked it but me. Everybody liked it. And they liked the song. And George liked the song. As the only person who didn't like it. So uh, we kept it, you know, because nobody complained about it. And it stayed in the show. But um, <laughs> anyway, I was the one fighting against it. When we were first doing the, the show, and we ran the Christmas show, the music track in there and so forth, and we're setting things up while we're programming, we suddenly realized that the speaker system in there was awful. (laughs) We didn't even dawn on us when we were creating the show that, wow, the sound quality is really bad in here. It's like, what kind of speakers are they using? And the 
and the coverings for the speaker were so covered with paint that they muffled all the sound because they put this type of scrim over the speaker and then painted it to do some detail because you had to hide the speaker. And so our audio guy came down and he says, uh, he was like, oh my God, this is really bad. <laughs> like We got to do something. So we said, hey man, whatever you got to do, just figure it out. So he bought all new speakers, I think, for the whole show. And then he was adding all the speakers for um, Rufus up on where the lighting area was and around the room. So it sounded like a circular theater as he traveled and ran up and down. But we had to improve the speakers for like the three girls and the, the characters singing in the fiber rugs because they just sound too muffled. And so a lot of that all got swapped out um, during the Christmas show. And they just, you know, use it for all the shows. But I never would have known that we needed new speakers. So that got added to the budget like afterwards. Right. And Jack, Jack would like shook his head. Jack Taylor, who was our, you know, he was our manager, but we we made him our producer too. Mm -hmm. And it was his suggestion. He says, well, if I'm watching you guys and taking care of you, why don't you just make me the producer? And I'll go to all the meetings and do all the paperwork, and you guys don't have to deal with all that, right? And he said, great, you do that. Take care of it for us, you know, because we didn't want to go to those meetings, and we didn't want to have to, like, deal with budgets and stuff. So then he would have to go in and retell them, we need money for speakers. <laughs> He'd have to go in. But I could tell his look on his face, like, oh, i got to go back in and ask for more money, you know. And um, But he would get it for us, so he didn't let us down. You mentioned that you did the, the installation of the Japanese show, the shows in Japan as well. And one thing I've noticed in watching those on you know, YouTube is that the shows aren't exactly the same. There are some differences in songs. Some, some are in Japanese, some are in English, and some are like different numbers entirely. Was that something that you guys did? Or like who did the localization of that? That's a good point. Um, they wanted that. Mm -hmm. And um, that was all their request. I think their penguin actually isn't in an ice cube. I think theirs was animated. They actually made an animated penguin. Mm -hmm. And they didn't understand the gag. Some of the gags they don't understand. And they didn't understand that gag of being in an ice cube. It wasn't funny to them. And so that got cut and they actually just made an animated penguin. They said, we'll spend the money. And then they also said, look, we like certain songs that we want um, that Japanese uh, people like to sing along to. And for both shows, Vacation Show 2, they, they requested that we change um, some songs uh, just because they wanted to sing along to it. Songs that were well known in Japan more than they were well known in America. Uh, so that's how that happened. And we, we kind of didn't care. We didn't understand their world that well. Um, and we weren't going to fight it. So, yeah, sure, it makes sense. So yeah. we would change it. I've noticed some, also some, aside from the song, some differences in the animatronics, like the penguin, like you said. And also in the uh, vacation show, there's a scene with an octopus where the bear's in love with the octopus and their octopus is a little more animated. It's kind of a kind of a differently styled octopus than the one in the American show. Yeah. The same problem is they didn't like the one we had, but 
again, what happened is the vacation show with Octopus, we couldn't, we couldn't, um, we couldn't have a new figure, but we did make an octopus as a somewhat new figure. But all we could have was one digital function wiggling it. Mm-hmm. And we used the same control that the penguin had wiggling it for the octopus. It was the same signal. And, and, and the cards um, usually have eight digital functions on it, and they're usually a lot of extra spare ones. So that was always easy. You didn't have to have a new card. You didn't have to have new wiring. There are already eight additional functions on a card that you could choose for many of those. So that wasn't that big of a deal to add digital functions. But you couldn't add analog and you couldn't build, you know, a whole animatronic. So that Octopus, I can't remember, I think it came out of um, the submarine ride or something like Mm -hmm. that. And we just repainted it. And the, the... the octopus's name is Dolores, and that was the name of our secretary. And Mike, Mike, Mike wanted to donate the octopus's name to Dolores because we really liked her. She was a really good secretary, and uh, so that's how Dolores got her name. Because um, they actually mentioned that you know Shaker does in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I originally wanted the song. Um, uh, What's it called? Under the Sea by Bobby Darren, I think. That's, mm, uh, that's Beyond the Sea. Or Beyond the Sea, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the song that I wanted for that. And Mike and George wouldn't go for it. Oh. And I thought, oh my God, that would have been perfect for it. But that's where we butted heads. It was that one song, I'll tell you. I really tried to get that in there. Because it was a really popular, well-known song, and it kind of fit with the whole sea thing. Mm-hmm. And, the boat scene and, and the octopus. The logs on the uh, vacation show came later, and that was a scene that I added. And I actually didn't think they would go for it. And if you ever go to the morgue and look at the illustration I did, they turned it into a poster that they sold for a while. And I don't think they sell it anymore. But in the poster shows the logs there. But when I painted it, I first painted all these the five bear rugs. And I spent like two or three weeks on it trying to get this painting right. And I was only doing the painting for the costume ladies, exactly how the costumes. And I was using um, Mark Davis's bear drawings as a reference because I thought, I'm just doing this painting for, um, you know, the costume ladies. No one else is going to see it. Or like, you know, and they just want to know what the props were, what the costume was. And I didn't want to like, do different poses for the bears. They just want to get it done. But it was all watercolor. It had to be finished. So I finished it. And then came the suggestion of, why don't we put logs and make it turn it into a raft? And uh, because they're supposed to be on a river, on a, you know, and make it look like this river raft. And then I realized it was a great suggestion, but I didn't want to do this drawing over. It would take me three weeks. <laughs> And just to add these logs. So I I put cellophane over it and I painted on the back of the cellophane like they do in the old animation technique or how they would do multiplane on glass and they would paint on glass. And um, I did it that way and then take the cellophane on so that you could see the, the artwork either way with the logs or without. And uh, everybody liked the logs so the, the cellophane stayed and the logs stayed into the show. 
But what happened is I noticed that the Christmas show and the vacation show, in the original show, they actually just kept the logs on. They didn't take them off. They just liked them. Mm -hmm. And I never requested that. And it's just like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I wasn't going to fight it, but less work for maintenance. Yeah. And they're still there today, as far as I know. That, that's that's really interesting. I didn't realize that's where they came from. Yeah. There was um, the little teddy bear kid on the vacation show. Mm-hmm. No, and he's just there for cuteness for the audience and the little kids, I guess. But uh, I had come up with this idea of fireflies. And when I first worked at Disney, they sent me down to work at Pirates of the Caribbean to replace some of the fireflies in Pirates of the Caribbean. That was one of my first jobs. And Mark Miller started teaching me how to make fireflies for pirates and so i had to make all these fireflies and we went down there and we replaced them because every now and then i guess they break or because they're running constantly i guess the wire breaks on them you have to replace them so when i learned how to do that i came up with this idea is like why don't we put fireflies in a glass jar as if this little kid caught all these fireflies and i wanted to go to the special effects department and ask them if they would create this well, they laid off all the effects guys, so there weren't any left, you know, after Epcot. So I just invented it myself because I kind of already already knew how to make them. But nobody ever thought of putting them inside of a jar. And then inside is a fan that blows them around inside the jar. And the fan is actually underneath, uh, blowing up into the jar from the bottom. Again, it's just the little details that make those shows so fun, details like that. Wendell's um, with a shotgun mm-hmm. originally had a normal straight shotgun. And I think it was Mike or somebody, you know, we were having a meeting on it. And they go, oh, my God, that's a real gun. You can't have a real gun in the show. And we thought, yeah, OK, we never thought of that. <laughs> it was like uh, he's holding a real gun and the gun is going to be shot. And there's going to be a light effect in it. And he's going to, you know, pull back and you're going to have the sound effect like a real shotgun. Like, people are going to run out of the theater. They're going to be scared to death. Like somebody shooting up the theaters. Like, he can't do that. I thought, oh, the little things you got to think about, <laughs> you know. Right. And this was one of them. It's like, oh, how are we going to solve this? And Mike goes, I know. Let's take the barrel and we'll just twist it around and make like it's all deformed. So that it'll just like like a stupid messed up red deck shotgun of some type, and I said that's a great idea. So I redraw it, and when we went to go make it, I just said, yeah, just twist and bend these barrels around and just deform them. So it couldn't possibly ever work, and that's why we had to do it because it just we didn't want people running out of the theater thinking someone was really shooting a gun, <laughs> right. So, uh, but it just added another gag to it. So, yeah, it made it feel more cartoony for sure. You know, we had a really hard time finding voices for the girls and some of the characters. And you don't realize this that George was really good. George Wilkins was fantastic getting all the musicians. And he found all of them. He had a whole network of musicians, but he had problems with some of them because some of them didn't read music, but they were excellent at playing. And George was like, hey, don't worry about it. Like, I'll just play it for you. And you just listen. And, you know, oh, wow. but so I think one of the guys quit because he didn't know how to write the read the music sheets. 
he was telling me and um he was a really good fiddle player or something like that it's like no no get him back we need him uh but we ran into those kind of conflicts because you don't you know you're not used to like pulling a fiddle player out that's you know um southern cowboy of some type that really knows how to play the fiddle but he doesn't know how to read music so you kind of like ran into these little tiny problems of how to get around it but we had problems with the voices where we had a whole list of people that cried out for the job as the voices of the bears but some of them sang like opera singers and they just did not fit. I mean, their voices were beautiful. They were crystal clear. They just didn't sound like a bear. They sounded like an opera singer or something. And then you had other people that sang like a rock and roll star, but they didn't fit a bear. So we we're always fighting that. It's like, uh, this has got to, you know, this has got to be Trixie, you know, or this has got to be Teddy Bear, or this has to be the three girls. And I remember one girl we had, um, very pretty girl that she was a really good singer and and a professional singer and she did a great job but her voice just did not you know we would record her voice and then put it with a picture of the bear and go not nah, doesn't fit that doesn't sound like a bear right and we had a cutter and she was really upset that we cut her out of the show but it was just one of those things and sometimes we got people who weren't as good of a singer um to do the character just because the their voice had such a personality that just sounded like a bear uh, <laughs> right. but then we struggled with them singing so it, it, it went both ways and we found for the three little girls i remember we found this group of three girls that um they actually were a group that were together and i went to washington play um on stage somewhere and they're really good, but they kind of did their own thing, you know, their own style of music that, you know, wouldn't never fit with the Disney thing. But we brought him into the studio and asked him to sing, you know, the songs of the three girls. They fit perfectly. They had such weird, different personalities that they just fit. And it was like spot on perfect. Uh, you just never would imagine it. it just if you look at it you say no i can't be the three girls that, that's not right but then you record their voices and lay down the track and listen to it with the image of the three girls and you go oh wow that's perfect <laughs> yeah. yeah oh you know um mike and i had this problem with gomer at the piano um gomer is his hands can get caught on the piano keys real easy and it was it wasn't a really good design and i don't know how they could have improved the design because he's got to you know look like he's playing the piano mm -hmm. I mean, you can't change the piano with solid wood but the problem was if he got his hands caught underneath um the keys um and then he raised his hands up he would actually break his wrist and sometimes he'd break a you know oil line or a transducer line or uh things like that inside his wrist and then you'd have to call maintenance over they'd have to take it all apart and fix it it would take hours or all day to fix it and then maintenance would be mad at you for, for a week so you know after we broke it a few times we just got oh we got to come up with a better solution and so i finally realized that um if i just unbolt the piano 
and take it off the stage and just set it over there out of the way i program gomer and um get it just right and i would put tape or cardboard where the piano was so if he hit the cardboard or tape it wouldn't matter if he broke that you know mm-hmm. and then once i got the programming done then i would just put the piano back but one day um i did that the programming was done we slid the piano back in there and a costume lady had to um change the costume was working on the costume something about it uh and it was real minor but she was standing right next to it and um i forget what i did but i ran the figure did something wrong and the piano we hadn't bolted it back down because we were so used to unbolting it taking it off the stage and putting it back on and getting it out of the way and i ran it and all of a sudden gomer picked up the piano and threw it like a, a couple of feet <laughs> And, oh, she screamed and jumped off the stage and looked at me like, what, what are you doing to me? He's like, don't ever do that again. It's like, God, oh, and I screwed up big time that, that day. And then Mike was telling me a story when he was working on the Bears in Tokyo, he was doing Gomer. And he did the same thing as he, he threw the piano <laughs> out of the way, just pushed it off. It's a real rock and roll moment for Gomer. Yeah, I <laughs> guess trashed so. his instrument. Uh, we both had that problem. You know, he would tell me that, yeah, um, Dave, you know, I would have nightmares because we'd be around these bears every day around the clock. He says, I'd go to sleep. I'd wake up in the middle of the night. I'd be dreaming about bears, you know, bears in my sleep. And I, you know, I told him, you know, I kind of have the same problem, but my problem is, is I keep hearing the same song all day and all night. It just keeps playing in my head because I'd be sitting there programming that same song over and over and over, like the three girls song. And it's like, because it took me several days to just program that one scene. I just couldn't get the song out of it. It wouldn't stop playing. And uh, really irritating, you know. Um, But I always had that problem on every show that I worked on. You'd hear the soundtrack over and over, and then it just wouldn't stop playing in your head, the soundtrack. I would imagine the amount of times you had to go over that, I would imagine it would stick in there pretty good because it's they're catchy songs to begin with, but then <laughs> to listen to them all day over and over again. But, uh, Henry's head was really heavy. In that hat that he wears, mm-hmm. it's even heavier. Um, and... And because of that, it was hard to punctuate a head nod move on certain syllables and things like that. But when you put the raccoon on his head, it became way too heavy. And it was just a constant fight and struggle with that raccoon. You could hardly move the head at all on Henry on that one figure because the raccoon was just so heavy. The raccoon you could move around really well. And... um, I guess on the one of the other shows we switched him into a skunk just for fun and do mm-hmm. just for more gags. But um, man, that was tough to work with. You, you wouldn't think it, but it, it's just one of those problems that you have of just too much weight. Um, if that was a, all electric motors today in compliance, it'd probably be no problem, and, and you could handle all of it, and it would look fantastic. And I remember George Wilkins was complaining about um because he was real in tune with the music all the time, right? In the beat. 
and he and he he wanted to see the bears keep the beam right but the problem is is <laughs> the bears just couldn't move that fast so you couldn't like tap their foot right to the beat because they couldn't tap their foot that fast so it'd be more like this <laughs> and, and it was really frustrating to him and he would he would he, he would tease me about it but i understood where he's coming from but you had to go with what you had to live with you know yeah, absolutely. They can only do so much. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned a couple of things at the start that I I hadn't realized you worked on. Uh, one was the DAC show at Epcot. The um, I guess it was the Astuter Computer Review. Was that the one? Yeah, I hated it. You didn't you didn't like that one? No, I really disliked it. It was so boring, and and the whole control mechanism of moving this little TV set on a track did not work very well. I was oh. struggling with it. And I would get it all programmed looking what I, I would spend all day on it. I'd come in the next day and it wouldn't work the same. Uh, it was really frustrating. And uh, the people, Rick Rothschild, I think, was directing me on it. And it, 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 to me, it was a really boring show, not that great. I mean, I understand why they did it, and you want to show off Dax and Central and all of that. Uh, but I'd much rather play with dinosaurs or bears or something, you know? Yeah. The one good thing about that working on that show, I didn't have anybody coming in bugging me saying, I want to see the show. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody, no construction workers, no pretty girls, nobody came in ever. I was always by myself and thinking, oh, God, this not this boring thing again. Well, I guess your instincts were right, because that was the shortest lived thing at, in the park. That that was gone in like six months or something like that. It, it didn't last long at all. I can see why. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other show in Tokyo, the um, I forget what they call it. It's like Hall of Presidents. For, the Meet the World show. Yeah, Meet the World. And they had these two young kids with a crane. Uh, that were talking, and and then they'd have um, these. I, I apologize if I say it wrong. I guess they're leaders or emperors or whatever um, uh, of different time periods that would come up, kind of like Hall of Presidents, mm -hmm. and they kids would interact with them. But it was all in Japanese, so for me, I just didn't understand it. I couldn't, even though I had an interpreter. And we'd write it down, they explain it, and we pre-programmed it to Unga building. To me, it was really boring. And and again, I didn't like it. And it, it was just too boring and really slow. To my surprise, the Japanese didn't like, like it either. They thought it was too boring and too slow, too. And, and they took the show out. Oh, really? For a while. So it didn't last long. And and, and people didn't go to it. It, it was always an empty theater. And... Uh, that was my first time being in Japan working. And they didn't give me a technical support person for some reason. They just sent me by myself, and I was supposed to just have the Japanese staff repair anything. And they were really good about it, and it worked out fine. It weren't a problem, but um, I, I think it was Claude Coates was the director on it. And Claude Coates was always showing up in a limousine with a limousine driver, this black limousine, and he'd show up like, you know, at lunchtime and want to see the show. And then 
he would leave for two hour, three hour lunch, and then he might come back, or I may not see him till the next day. It's like, that was his whole job. I thought, God, what kind of, I want a job like that. <laughs> a limousine driver and driving me around. But where is my limousine driver? Uh, and that really got to me for a long time when I was on it. And anyway, it wasn't fun for me. Yeah. So you never programmed that show in English because I know that at one point they wanted to bring it to Epcot, but so you never programmed it in English, only in Japanese? I think it was only Japanese. Yeah. I I can't remember. I'm pretty sure it was all Japanese. That's interesting. Yeah. I, um, uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Or I was just not paying attention to sleep the whole time I was there. I don't know. (laughs) Well, you didn't have the limousine, so. Well, late, much later, you worked on some other Epcot shows at well, well after opening, some of which are uh, have pretty big followings today. Did you work on Cranium Command? Uh, Doug Griffith mostly did that. Um, I did have to go over there and work a couple days um, to help out for some reason, whether Doug was sick or there was some issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just did a little bit of work on it. But yeah, it was mostly Doug's. It was a cool show and really great show. Um uh, well written, yeah. I thought it was, I thought it was really well done. Yeah, I wish I had done the whole thing, but you know, I was busy doing other stuff. All right. Well, another one you did, uh, which is an interesting case, was Food Rocks, right? Uh, yes and no. Doug did most of Food Rocks. I'm sorry. Um, there was there two Food Rocks. I was over there programming on it. I think we split it 50 50 or something like that. Oh, yeah. I think that's what worked. Um, I, I, I didn't like that show. The characters were just too limited. The They didn't put enough functions in. Uh, they were really, you know, on their case about the budget. So they cut a lot of functions out that they should have put in. So I, I didn't have good animation. I couldn't get good animation. I couldn't get good control. I think if they put the money into it, the animation, I think it would have been just a fantastic show. Um, but I think it was just too many budget cuts. That's an interesting point. Cause that's a show. I know that there are a lot of people who really love that show, but as somebody like I had been a big fan of kitchen cabaret, which had been there before and food rocks felt way less complicated technically than kitchen cabaret had been. And I think it goes to a lot of what you said, uh, well, that's right. Doug, did, Doug did Kitchen Cabaret, and I guess I did Food Rocks. Okay. Yeah, that's how it worked. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think Doug was helping me on Food Rocks a little bit. I don't think I did 100% of it. But I was surprised, you know, they redid it. Um, um, I forget who the director was, but was it Willie Crump? I think he was in on it. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. And, uh, but. You know, I didn't have much say so in it. I, I wish I was involved in the very beginning of it, where I had say so as for what the function should be and how they should have done it. And I, they didn't bring me in early enough. And and usually, if they bring me early and I have, I'm able to put my two cents in exactly how to build a figure, what functions you need, you know, um, and how to stage it, how to set things up, and and it makes a big difference mm-hmm. I, I, it just really improves it it's like you know 
you would want Mark Davis coming in and, and making sure that everything is staged correctly or, you know, and or with Rogers to come in and make sure you have all the right functions in. Absolutely. But after Epcot, they kind of didn't put me in that Waitha Rogers role for a while. And it was Tony Baxter eventually complained to management and said they wanted me in that role as chief animation producer and going through and checking all the figures and checking the functions and early stages of how everything was built and how it was staged, especially for Euro Disneyland. And and Euro Disneyland came out so much better because of that, I think. Because a lot of people who are art directors, they think they know everything. But when it comes to animatronics, a lot of times they're not paying attention or they don't know little tricks and techniques that you have to have. You don't think about, you know, how the wrist should be made in mechanically uh, or how far the feet should be apart or how they should be placed on the frame below, where the air valve should be, um, how close they should be to the figure, just l little things that actually will affect the figure mm -hmm. or runs and performs. So. Well, I think of like the late 80s and early 90s as a period of like real innovation and animatronics. Did you work on Great Movie Ride? Um, yes and no. Uh, there I, I was involved uh, as for the early stages on how everything should be, um, what functions should go where. Mm -hmm. But we really worked on the witch on, you know, exactly what to put in it. Um, uh, we went over a lot of the figures and, and we we're in a lot of arguments with the producer and, and the staff of the budget as for how much money we can spend, what can we do? And, but usually on that show, they were pretty supportive and they would listen and, and, and you could tell like the wicked witch turned out fantastic. Yeah. And, um, I wanted to program it and I think uh, Doug got to do it. So uh, I probably was busy on something else and and that's the reason why. Um, but yeah, overall it came out pretty good. I, I, there's a few things I have mixed feelings on, but yeah. Was working with figures based on celebrities that people know, like famous movie stars from the past, was that a challenging thing? Um, because it's something that people recognize. Well, uh, you know, I had to go meet with a sculptor, the sculpting department, and and as well as all the maple guys, and 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 give my two cents as for how the head should be sculpted and whether the anatomy is correct. Mm -hmm. And um, that was kind of a new lesson with me. I because I could see where it was off. And it's hard sometimes to tell the sculptor that, hey, you're not doing a good job or um, this is not correct. And the anatomy's off just slightly. You know, you're real close, but you're just slightly off or the head is just a little too big. Um, the chin's a little too pointed, whatever it would be. Mm -hmm. And and that's hard to take for some of those people and trying to tell them that you, you got to go back and work on this. So there's a lot of politics and tactics of how to get them to change it because i can't go in and, and be sculpted for them uh, i can't i'm not allowed to touch it but i can only voice my opinion and they would have all kinds of pictures and artwork and things but 
you get into the point where you um you clash with artists you know and and some of them have really bad temperaments and they don't want you to criticize their work or find something wrong with it and that would happen sometimes um uh, on, on some of these show, shows and i understand i mean i've done it myself where i've gotten like pissed off because someone criticized my work and you know, it just happens mm-hmm. you know artist part of the process well you mentioned the witch figure which was so amazing and uh i just wondered what was it what were the advancements in that what was it that set that figure apart what was it that was going on uh, at the time technologically Um, mainly it was compliance and what happened is um the university of utah a company called sarcos that came out of there um Disney Imagineering got um, working with them to create a software where we could speed up the functions and make them move much quicker. But then the what they called compliance is what they call it, is that it acted like a shock absorber. It quickly moved, but it took all the shock away. Now, with the old figure, when you moved, if you moved an arm real quick, uh, what would happen as soon as you stop the arm, the whole body would shake. Yeah. And that would look terrible. But when you have compliance, it became the shock absorber through the whole figure and it absorbed all that shock so that you could actually move things much, much quicker. Right. So as for, you know, being able to animate and no animation and acting, um, both Doug and I were, were were great at it. Doug was probably even better than me. Um, but now that he had compliance in there, he can move that figure so much faster. And there was kind of a learning curve with um, the technical support for being Doug, uh, especially Eric Squab, as for understanding how to tune um, the cards and the and all the little functions on it to adjust the compliance to get it just right. Because I noticed when we first did it, we did it on the auctioneer, and I programmed that auctioneer. And then we did it on Lincoln down at Disneyland, and I programmed Lincoln. But by the time we got to the witch, the witch got a lot better. But yet, it was really still the same compliance. We just kind of understood it a lot better of how to tune it correctly. And I saw a dramatic improvement as we went. And then when we went to American Adventure, and we did that show, Doug and I kind of split it 50-50. And we had a whole bunch of figures where we put compliance in uh, on those figures and reanimated it. And um, Chief Joseph, um, which Doug ended up animating, we kind of flipped the coin, who gets what figures, and he got Chief Joseph. Um, and uh, uh, he just got just so much more movement and life out of that. I, I was blown away. It just... It, that compliance just made such a huge difference. And some of the other figures, I think it was Will Rogers and Mark Twain had it. You could see a big difference, you know? And plus, Doug and I were getting much better as animators. We kind of really stood the uh, anaconda. We understood how to combine functions and how to get the most out of the figure and what their correct process, you know, what functions to start with and how to tune the figure get it, you know, prepared ahead of, ahead of time. Yeah, big improvement. And I think when they went to 
um, Hall of Presidents they started getting into. I think it was a uh, Obama was compliant figure. They got a lot more out of the figure. Right. But you have to be careful. You can actually move it too much to where it doesn't look good. You can actually overdo it. I would imagine, like, well, as with any tool, once it improves, you're tempted to push those limits. And I would imagine at some point it becomes sort of cartoony. You're you're going too far with it. Yeah, I am. Um, well, I guess it was Indiana Jones. Um, Deborah Short had originally programmed it, and I guess Tony Baxter didn't like it. I was actually working at Pixar. I left Disney to work at Pixar on Toy Story and um, uh, Bugs Life and Toy Story 2. And they asked me to come down during a break um, at Pixar to reprogram some of the um, Indiana Jones figures. And I think that all had compliance in it, um, as I recall, but I was able to just push it a little further. I used most of our animation and didn't go that far away. But I just, from experience, I just knew techniques of how to just get more out of them uh, than what she got. Uh, but it was still basically the, the same animation she did. I just plussed it. Mm -hmm. Well, for the studios park, you also worked on Muppet Vision. And I just wondered what it what it was like working with Jim Henson. Um, he was pretty cool. I, I, I really enjoyed working with him. He, uh, a uh, really nice guy, um, really laid back, um, really knew his craft really well. You know, he was definitely an expert at his craft. But sometimes you get people high up there and they have an attitude or ego or something like that. He didn't have any of that. He was just down earth, nice guy and and didn't give you any type of crap or problem. He just... Um, uh, was very willing to work with you. And so when we were doing Muppet Vision, I had to um, figure out all the function list and uh, for all the characters. But they wanted to program with this little puppet uh, um, animatronic device that they wear like, like a Muppet, but they just hold it in their hand and then it transfers that information directly. But I couldn't quite convince them that, you know, I can do the same thing on Anacon, but I can actually do it more precisely and get even more range than what you're getting. Mm -hmm. But he never used the Anacon, so he didn't, wasn't willing to try it. And it would take him, you know, his response, well, it will take me 10 years to learn how to do that. <laughs> this is what he would tell me. And I go, I haven't got 10 years. And in fact, he used to tell me, you know, sometimes he goes, you know, Dave, you don't even start getting good at this until you've done it for 10 years. Wow. You know, and I said, you know what, that's with everything, you know, I find. And um, he was so right about that. Um, he he walked into me one day and he said, hey, Davey, um, I understand you did the costumes on um, the Country Bear Show. And I go, uh, yeah, I I designed them all. Yeah. Why, why do you ask? He says, well, can I see some of them? And I, so I just went back to my desk and I brought in some and showed him some of it. He goes, great. Can you design all the costumes for um, the Muppet show for me? <laughs> I go, what? <laughs> oh, gee. 
are you sure about that? And it's like, yeah. I mean, the 3D Muppet Vision show. And I go, yeah, okay, whatever you want. And so I, I um, the two old men, I did some costume, some Hawaiian shirts and stuff like that and and did drawings of uh, in color. And I thought, God, he's going to criticize this and rip me apart. And I brought all these drawings of all the costumes and showed them to me. He says, perfect. That's just what I want. This is, these are perfect. It's like, yeah, don't change anything. I'm like, nobody does that. <laughs> he the first time with everything. But he liked it all. And um, he walked in one day and we were talking, um, just he and I, about our, 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 we're working on a show for Star Tours, I think, or something. He walked up to me and he, he was looking at it. And he was really interested in how we did programming with the Anacon and stuff like that, you know? And because he was really interested in that whole other world with animatronics. And I talked to him about doing a completely different show with um, <laughs> animatronics. And he goes, Dave, I really like this idea. It's like, you think we can work on it together? And I go, yeah, sure. It's like, and he he came back to me later that day. Dave, I really like this idea. I mean, we, we got to work on this. It's like, I think we can make it happen. And I said, no, I think it's a fantastic show. And I can't tell you what the show is about uh, over this, um, but mm -hmm. um, he died like a week or two later. Oh, that's such a shame. And I thought, oh my God, it was just so heartbreaking. <laughs> Like, uh, so anyway, um, that was such a huge loss. That was that was a real heartbreaker. Yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, that was really sad. I remember the working on the show that a couple of the animators and um, got really like cutting me down and trashing me, saying that I messed up on the function list because they didn't put a head tilt in the penguins. And like, how stupid could you be, Dave? Like, you gotta have the head tilt in there. And I, I wanted to scream at these guys and go, hey, I, I had the head tilt in there like three times. But when you're, the role of chief animation producer as Waithold was, um, you're constantly fighting with all these upper management on how many functions you can have, how much money you can spend. You know, they're trying to take all the functions out to save money, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to put them in and you put them in on your list and then you get the list back and they cut functions out of it. You put them back in and then they cut half as many functions out. And then you put them back in and they cut more functions out. And it's just this constant battle that goes back and forth. And I would fight with, it wasn't just them, but sometimes it was Larry Shelton, um, who was a really brilliant guy, and he he was um, overseeing Maple and how the figures are built. And he would argue with us sometimes, like, um, I can't fit all those functions inside that head. That figure is too small. You know, you have to take one of the functions out. You know, you can have a head nod, head turn, head tilt, but you can't have all three. You know, and the penguin's just too small; it won't fit. So that was one of the arguments too. Uh, but 
what happened is, is after they built the figure and got it all done and realized um, that we needed it, Larry went back in and looked at the penguin because now the penguin's all built. You can see how much space you have. Mm-hmm. Say, okay, I think we can cram this in there. And then they realized they could fit it in. But those are small little figures. And, and you know, you're, you're, you're fighting a million things. <laughs> yeah. I've been yelled at so many times by Mickey Steinberg and, you know, the leaders and producers over money and budget. And, you know, I'm I'm the bad guy always because I'm the guy putting all the functions in and spending all the money. So I'm the guy who gets yelled at for it. <laughs> right. Well, last time you mentioned with with regards to that, the the dragon in Paris. And of course, we talked about the the fencing pirates. Uh, what other what other things from Paris stood out for you? Because uh, that was an enormous project, I would imagine. Sometime later, ask me about the Indian. By the way, at the, the before I forget. Okay. But that was on the, what is it? The Mark Twain where the boat goes around at Disneyland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, go ahead. You can t- you can talk about that. Um, I know the sort of uh, just dawned on me for some reason because you asked me what else. Um, I had designed that and came up with this idea of running, doing animatronics differently. I was always looking at things differently as how we can run the cables, run the figure, and get more action out of them. So I came up with this idea that I did a bunch of sketches for of it running out his back of his waist. And by doing that, we could crouch him down by a fire, mm-hmm. and then he can stand all the way up. And we'd never done that with a figure before. And uh, we wanted to have it hydraulic, but the problem was he had to be outside. So we put it with an overhang to help protect him from the sun and the rain. But unfortunately, I really wanted to program it. It was like a big deal to me. And I I was swamped. I I think I was in Tokyo at the time trying to do um, Star Tours or something like that. And I and I was doing a million things on in, um, Paris on all those shows. And so Mark Miller ended up programming that figure. And uh, I really regretted that. I wish I had got to play with it because I really wanted to learn from it. Because I actually had thought of a way to do the exact same thing to emulate Michael Jackson dancing. And I realized it could actually make Michael Jackson dance and by the same principle. And, um, and and I proved with that figure that we could do it. And that was something that they were trying to get Michael to um, be in one of our shows. And he came into work to uh, see us a few times. And he would sit down with me. And Michael's a really nice guy. Mm-hmm. And he would sit down and he loved learning about animatronics. I mean, he just really enjoyed it. And he would sit down, I'd show him how to program, and he would move the functions and play with one of the pirates or something like that. And uh, he'd ask me all kinds of questions. And he'd have like a whole entourage of bodyguards with him. But um, yeah, I wasn't allowed to tell him about this idea or the price of anything or anything like that. But they were just trying to convince him into doing a show with a bunch of um, big stars. Uh, but it turns out, it, I guess it was too expensive or it didn't happen or they couldn't get a contract. But um, I think they're doing, originally they're doing Captain EO 
and he was involved in that. And uh, but they were having him; they wanted him to do a whole other show. Oh, interesting. And um, it was just one of those ideas, the concept ideas that just didn't happen. But I figured out how to actually do an animatronic of him. And uh, uh, it, it certainly was possible. So that carried <laughs> over into the figure on Rivers of America then? Yes. And then I did my first sample of that to prove that it could be done from that figure. That's and interesting. Once I knew that figure was done, I was convinced that I could do the Michael Jackson figure. But um, but anyway. That's or, an interesting or, or connection. Or a dancing figure, I should say. Mm-hmm. Because you know, the legs were completely free, the legs could animate and do whatever you want. But uh, but anyway, um, let's go back to your other question about what was it? Euro Disney Paris? Yeah, yeah. Paris? Yeah. Man, that was a big project. I uh, I was really burnt out. I always get burnt out after every show. I'm always like <laughs> sick and tired. I need like a month vacation or so. Well, I would imagine with Paris. Uh, so many of those shows were heavy on animatronics. You had the Pirates, you had Phantom Manor. Yeah. It, you had shows like uh, Visionarium, which was Timekeeper here in America, which uh, is fondly a fondly remembered project. My main was, my main shows were the Visionarium programming that mm-hmm. and Dragon. Uh, but I was also overseeing everything in there. And Doug Griffith, who originally programmed the Pirates, couldn't go to Paris um, for some reason. And uh, so I had to fill in for him and uh, touch up any programming on the Pirates and things like that. But there wasn't much to do, but uh, the sword fighters needed about a month of work uh, to, to try and make them work a lot better, and mostly for maintenance they were hitting their swords and they weren't supposed to hit. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of that, um, you wanted to make them stop just before they hit, just so that it wouldn't put so much strain and stress on a, the, all the arm functions. Um, but the, in the dragon was, um, the dragon was my favorite project of anything I think I've worked on. I, I really liked it. I, I got yelled at the most. And threatening to be fired is what I felt like. <laughs> but I certainly got scolded for spending too much money. And um, I, I, I never got a, any thank you from Tony Baxter, but I think he he, he meant it anyway. <laughs> so he knew I would get yelled at for adding all the functions and fixing it up. He and Tom Morris basically said, you do it. Because <laughs> they knew that I would have to go ask for all this money. But it turned out great. I was really happy with it and the whole scene. And Skip Lang did a great work with the rock work and the whole interior scene. And Tom Morris did a great job with the whole castle and, you know, the painting, the colors, the rock work. When you put it all together, you know, it was great teamwork. Um, But, uh, uh, yeah, somebody, I probably shouldn't even say his name, but somebody got on my case about it several times it says hey man i i think that dragon should talk to the audience when they come in i i, I think they should say hello you know and just have a conversation with the audience and interact with them and i go no we're not doing that like, that ruins everything 
That was he history. was he was really adamant. He came back numerous times requesting to do that. And he was a really good creative person. I was really surprised. But again, this is one of those times where creative people clash, you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes they have ideas and you go, no, that's not the vision I have. And that's not what I want to do. But thank you. And don't come back with that idea again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it obviously worked. The, the dragon worked because, you know, everybody I know who goes to Paris comes back and talks about talks about that dragon it's an impressive thing it really is and and the one in tokyo is not impressive they have the same dragon but it only has two functions you know and they didn't have me to go through and say okay here's how you should have made it here's the functions you should have put in and you could have made it just as realistic and amazing and actually i wanted to go even further with that dragon with a neck and I argue with Larry Shelton about the cost of it. We knew how to do it where we would make the whole neck all um, a flexible skin, you know, like a dinosaur skin. Mm -hmm. And because originally it was all fiberglass. And, you know, if you start bending all the joints in the neck, you have several different bends in the neck, but you'd have big giant gaps and you would see those gaps. So you'd have to cover it with a flexible, that's flexible dinosaur skin, you know, like a rubber skin. But it, it costs a lot of money to do the entire neck. <laughs> I didn't have the money to do the entire neck. And I remember Joel and Cicero, I just got yelled at by Mickey Steinberg and scolded for being over budget. And Joel and Cicero, nice guy, really creative, lots of talent, comes in and, and, and we're at the dragon and he's getting on my cases and like, I think you should have done the whole neck. You should have put the whole, you know, flexible neck the whole way through. And I go, Joe, you just don't understand what I just went through to get <laughs> that neck. Like, there's no way they're going to give me money for your neck. And he's like, no, you should have gone for it. Like, no, no, that's all right. It's easier to say than to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and whenever Mickey would show up, he always would have, you know, the budget guys with them with all their paperwork you know and they would have everything you know a whole list all typed out exactly what every single item cost and uh you know it's like what can you cut today i want something cut you know cut something out of the shell cut it cut it cut it you know it's like oh my god you know you, you just have to put up with that all the time mm -hmm. Well, talk about Visionarium a little, because that uh, it didn't have a lot of animatronics. It only had the two, but it yeah. was still really impressive. The, these were very impressive figures. Really difficult to animate. Really, really difficult. Um, really dangerous, too. Uh, in, in, in the aspect that you you could hit, you know, the, the robot character was right next to a console all around him mm -hmm. the other one was kind of a floating figure that was smaller that just kind of moved in and out and kind of interacted that wasn't that hard but the main human figure was constantly moving his arms and hands down to all the buttons and all those buttons and the, the the equipment was solid and if you hit it too hard you'd break the hand or you break the arm or shift it the arm would slip on the shaft and get out of place so it was a really dangerous figure to work on and you had to really concentrate 
when you reset it back to a certain position, because sometimes when you reset back to where you want to start again, if the arms aren't out of the way of that console, they can get caught underneath of it and um, rip the arm off or break it or damage it or tear the button all off. Mm -hmm. So you, you really had to be on your game and concentrate. Now, when I, very, very first day, the first thing I did is I had them put up scaffolding in the middle of the theater and one story up, big enough for me to put the Anacon up there in a chair and stuff like that. I would tell everybody, well, I, I need it for the sight line so that I can see over that console so that the hand, you know, I don't catch the hand on anything. I can see what I was doing. They go, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. If that's the case, we'll, we'll put the scaffolding up for you. But I was lying to them. What I was really doing is I didn't want people to bug me. <laughs> so if I was up on the scaffolding, people would not go in there and climb up on the scaffolding to start talking and sitting down and chatting. And that whole theater was this situation where people just wanted to come in and hang out with you and watch you and just ask you like 100 questions. And then bring their friends in and ask a hundred more questions. But when I was up on the scaffolding and they couldn't reach me, nobody asked me any questions. Nobody talked to me. I just had all the freedom to do the programming. So that's what the scaffolding was for, just to get <laughs> people to stop annoying me. Um, but it, it was a really, it came out really nice. We had a problem with it. And I argued with the art directors and just the people involved that in Larry Shelton in the Mapo is that the head, they put all these body parts on it, which made the robot look really cool, right? Or the animatronic, if you want to call it. And, and, and it looked great. But the problem is, is it was too top heavy. And like I told you before, you add so much weight. When you add too much weight, it puts stress somewhere else. And this was the case. It wasn't fur. It was all these plastic parts that are all part, part of his costume. Mm -hmm. And he they added a bunch of functions in his face as well, which looked great. But the problem was it added more weight. And what happened is, is all that weight transferred down to his waist, where his torso bin and his torso forebin was. Mm -hmm. And that linkage was really weak and couldn't handle that much weight. It was designed for pirates but it wasn't designed for this figure. This was a new type of figure that was just much, much heavier than a normal pirate. Uh, and because of that, that whole linkage became a huge problem. So whenever you moved it, suddenly the figure would shake and vibrate and uh, not want to work properly. It wasn't nice and smooth. It was always shaking and, and, and it, that didn't look good with it shaking around. Um, in, in anything you did caused it to shake. Just moving his arm would cause that function in the stomach to shake. Mm -hmm. I remember they we had Maple guys over there helping us, and I'd asked them several times to fix it. I'd asked Larry Shelton to fix it before they sent it over, and and they didn't fix it. And, it, and I think they tried, they just didn't know how to fix it. And And the Maple guys were over there, and they were getting really frustrated with me they had tried they took it apart several times trying to fix it figure out a way to beef it up so it could handle all this weight and stress and um they put it all back together and said no no you know they didn't fix it <laughs> i was really frustrated because i had to have this fixed 
And I couldn't convince that this maple guy was really the very best maple guy in the entire maple end of the company as for fixing figures and building them and maintaining. He was really, really good. And I was glad he was there. But I walked up to him one day and I said, you know what? You're over here because you're the very best in Mapo. The main reason you're here in Europe is because we thought that you could fix and solve any kind of problem we would come up with. Now, if you're telling me you can't fix it, then you, I'm not going to argue about it anymore. It obviously can't be fixed. All right. But I just want you to understand that's why we brought you over here. Mm -hmm. He heard that. <laughs> and that night, he took the whole figure apart and he figured out a way to fix it. And then the next morning it came in, it was completely solved. You know, he had his pride on the line. He had to prove that, yeah, he is the best. And he was, he, he figured it out. But I played this acting job on him and I was actually acting and just to see if I could talk him into fixing it. And uh, it was really an acting job on him, but. <laughs> but it worked. But it worked, you know, so sometimes that's what you have to do. Yeah. Well, you mentioned you made the jump to Pixar after after all this. What what drove that? What was it like going back to film and animation? S several reasons. I, I always liked film. That's where I started, right? Mm -hmm. The Fox and Hound and, and Pal Arts and animated films. And I like the whole idea that you got your name and credit on the film. With theme parks, I never got my name on anything. You really didn't get credit. This is about the most credit we could have is what we're doing today is where I get to talk to you and or, or go up at you know some convention once in a while and they might interview you. But it, it, that, that always bothered me. And Tony Baxter, and Tom Morris and some of those guys brought that up all the time, especially Tony, that, that there's something wrong about that because there was some really good talent and people should have got credit for it. And it wasn't just me. I mean, you look at Mark Davis and, and, and Sam McKinn and, and Frank Armitage and Exitencio and Willie Crump. I mean, there's a whole list of people, Waitha Rogers. They're all amazing people. And I just, wish there was a way to give them all the talent you know recognition that they deserve because they really contributed a lot and, and and it goes beyond just artists i mean there are people like um eric squap was probably the most talented guy at epcot i would you know people never would have thought of that but he solved so many technical problems and fixed so many issues i mean hundreds of them and he he never complained. He just he loved fixing it. He loves solving some kind of problem. And none of us could figure it out. And, and he knows, yeah, I'll do it. And I'll, he would have it fixed. You know. And Disney should have paid him a lot more money. But he he saved the day many many times. But you know, he never got the recognition. You know, you don't get your name on anything. So what happened is. I have friends at Pixar. Um, John Lasseter was a friend of mine, and um, Joe Ramp and Steve Rabbitage and Doctor. I mean, I knew a lot of these people. In fact, I tried to hire some of them to work in animatronics, but they'd rather work at Pixar, and I kind of understood why. I was like, 
Well, yeah, this is much better. Well, they invited me up one day and said, hey, you know, come up here. We want to show you what we're doing. I didn't take it that seriously, but I thought, oh, you know, I haven't seen San Francisco in a while, and I'll go up there. And I just kind of want to see what they're doing. And uh, they showed me the army man scene. I was just blown away. I thought, oh my God, you guys have finally done this. You finally figured out how to do computer animation for animated films. You proved it. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> they go, we want to offer you a job. <laughs> you know, like, like, wait, wait, what a second. You brought me up because you want to offer me a job? Yeah, no, we want to hire you. And, and, uh, um, they were real serious about it, and the producer then took me aside and offered me a job. And I said, "Well, that's a lot less pay than I'm making right now." And so I kind of said, "No thanks." And they kept trying to talk me into it. Well, I, at the time, I, I didn't like. Um, uh, I was really frustrated with uh, some of the management and all the you know hassles of fighting over budget and you know, functions and, and getting scolded for things and, you know, not animating fast enough. And uh, just all these meetings I had to go to to try and get anywhere. And I couldn't get any money or funding for special effects. I couldn't fix any problems. They wouldn't give me money for it. Uh, I just got so frustrated. I said, like, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know? So, uh, yeah, I just said, okay, Pixar, I'll, I'll come up there. And I went up there and um, and I, I didn't realize how difficult it was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Their animation is way harder than what I was doing. Way, way harder. And, and it's way more complicated in the software, everything. Mm -hmm. It was like a, going to another planet. It was just completely different. And my first day there, the very first day there, Universal Studios sends a headhunter to try and contact me to offer me a job to pull me away from Disney and Pixar. Really? <laughs> the very first day, I'm I'm working there, and they're call and this headhunter is calling me five times a day, saying, "We we want you at Universal Studios." whatever it takes what do you want money wise we'll, we'll give you whatever you want wow. you know we want to improve universal studios animatronics and we want you and i said no thanks and i said i just started a job today today's my first day you know it's like go go away don't call me anymore but she just kept calling and calling and calling and eventually i worked for him part-time in um it was okay. I mean, I did the dinosaurs for Jurassic Park and did a bunch of shows. Um, when after Toy Story was done and I had a little free time, I um, uh, Pixar didn't have any work for me. So I said, can I just go work 10 weeks down at Universal and do this dinosaur ride on Jurassic Park? And they said, sure, because we don't want to pay you. So they said, yeah, go ahead. It's like, but you got to come back in 10 weeks, you know? And so in 10 weeks, I finished the dinosaur ride and came back. And um, I had a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> so, yeah. But then they called me again and said, oh, we got these other rides, you know, like down in Florida. We want you to work on. 
So uh, they have three more shows they want me to work on. What's that for Islands of Adventure down here? Or the, the, There was, I can't even remember, one was a Popeye ride. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember what the other two were. They wanted me to figure out all their animatronics and their function list and how they all worked and uh, all that stuff. But um, anyway, I, I just like Pixar better, you know. Mm-hmm. But but then Tony Baxter and Marty Sklar started calling me up and saying, well, why don't you come work down here on your weekend and on your free, on your holiday and day off instead of Universal one? And we'll pay you <laughs> more. So I went down and did work for them. I mean, I did the uh, Indiana Jones and some other stuff. Uh-huh. But I, I didn't enjoy it that much, you know. Did you do the dinosaurs for the Animal Kingdom attraction? Uh, no. I had designed a dinosaur ride. At the same time, uh, Joe was doing um, a dinosaur ride for Animal Kingdom. Uh, okay. And I, mine was a water ride, more like parts of the Caribbean where you rode through on a boat. And I did all the illustrations and color illustrations, and well, well they were watercolor. And they actually really liked it. And um, uh, Marty liked it. And so, well, then Tony Baxter got to do it and went to Marty and took the whole show away from me and gave it to Chris Deeds and kicked me off the show. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so that didn't sit well with me. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to quit Disney. Because uh, there was, you know, that wasn't cool, you know, doing it behind my back. Uh, so, but then they tried to sell that same dinosaur ride for Disneyland, but it was so expensive that um, uh, they canned it. It was just too much money. But they kept Joe's, and Joe's, uh, Joe would come over and say, Hey, I like some of your illustrations of what you're doing. Can I borrow your drawings? And then he would take my drawings and pitch it in his show. So, so he was actually using some of my artwork during his pitch to help sell his. So in a way, I guess it was beneficial because his did get sold and got me. But yeah, I did go over like you know all the functions and stuff on there, and, and but I didn't program any of the figures. Okay. Yeah. But, but uh, I, well, I take that back. I programmed one dinosaur. And uh, they asked me to come down and program. It was a dinosaur that was in the water outside. And right. Then, yes. On the boat ride outside. Yeah. I forget where it was. But anyway, um, I was miserable. I was just getting eaten by mosquitoes and these black flies the whole time. And Eric Swap wouldn't even work with me. But I understand why, because the mosquitoes were so bad. <laughs> he just like set up the console and said, "Okay, I'm getting out of here." Uh-huh. And I'll see you at the end of the day. It's like, oh my god, there's mosquitoes everywhere, and these really nasty black flies that just kept biting you and flying in your eyes and your ears and stuff. And uh, the pain you have to go through just to program a dinosaur. Yeah. Oh, I would imagine that was a tough one because it was, I mean, an actual, I guess you would say not controlled water. Like when you're in an indoor environment, you have a closed system, but this was outdoors in the element, in the Florida elements of all things. 
And uh, I would imagine that was a tough one. Yeah, well, it was the flies and mosquitoes that made it tough. It wasn't yeah. everything else. Uh, I mean, I knew I knew how to program really well. I knew how to animate, and I felt comfortable doing it. And um, Joe put me on it another week to just uh, plus it even more. Um, so I, I guess it came out fine, but. Yeah, it was it was just un- you know uncomfortable situation. I would imagine. Yeah, you know, the, you know, programming figures sometimes is a really dangerous job. <laughs> I've been hurt several times, you know, and you know, you, you don't want to get hurt, and you don't want to like work all night to where you're a zombie the next day, uh, to where you can't drive home, and, and you know, you fall in the water and pirates and you know, uh, <laughs> right. what was this? Splash Mountain? I almost got killed. Um, where they turned on the water while I was programming. Oh no, that was one of them. Yeah, I, I remember. You know, people I'm bugging you all the time was always a problem, and I've mentioned this to you numerous times. Mm-hmm. Where they'd come in, and you know, and it's just human nature to like want to come see the show. Right. And, and that's fine. And, but when you're trying to concentrate, you just don't want people bugging you. And you don't even want them like looking in the window or looking in and seeing you. You just want them all to go away because you really have to concentrate because you're trying to think of things in one thirtieth of a second and hit everything on sync right on beat. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking that tight, um, especially lip sync or trying to hit dialogue on words and so forth. You can't have, you know, someone standing right next to you, you know, playing with their cell phone or, or doing anything. Well, what happened is all of us complained about it. We all had this problem. So the animation department finally built this room to where we had our own room that was closed off. So the public and the rest of the employees couldn't come in and bug us. Mm-hmm. And there was a secondary door that went into the office space at the other end and we would lock the door and we would put shades over the window so you couldn't even look in and this was you know a whole room that was big enough for us to program maybe one or two figures and you could have two people working at the same time it was so much nicer um and we we had a couple pirates in there that we're programming and playing with and one of them had a sword and i had been programming it trying to uh learn about it and I forget what, I think this was, was just uh, a demonstration is all it was that I was doing. But he had a real thick sword in his hand, an aluminum sword. And we had strict rules in place where you um, weren't allowed to come in when, you know, I was programming this figure because it's swinging a real sword around. It, it could slit your throat or hurt you. Yeah. And... Um, we had like a barrier rope around it and stuff like that. And, uh, uh, you know, we had the door locked so he couldn't come in. We had the shades closed. And um, Paul Reedy, who was the manager of the department, one day I'm programming and I run into the show and suddenly he walks in from the back door against all the rules, like we said. <laughs> he walks in and... and right up to the pirate and right when i'm running the show and the pirate swings the sword around 
hits him right in the forehead and slices the top of his forehead and puts a big gash in his head. Oh, no. Like, oh, my God, I just killed the manager. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I really cut him. I really hit him good. Big giant bump on his head. And um, he backed off. And he's like, oh, my God. And, you know, I went to bandage it up. And I went in and apologized to him. He says, no, it's not your fault. We have strict rules, and I didn't follow my own rules, and I'm the manager, and I didn't even follow the rules, and I disobeyed all of them. And I walked in the wrong door right into the scene while the figure was running. I deserve to be hit in the head with it. <laughs> and uh, uh, so yeah, he didn't blame me for it. But, yeah, I cut him pretty good. Yeah, yeah it's dangerous business. That's what we've learned for certain. Well, you know, you've worked a lot in films, you've taught, you've done a lot of things since your Imagineering days. What are you, what are you up to these days? Uh, right now, I'm working on uh, some animated movies ideas um, with a company in Canada. Um, I don't know if it's going to go anywhere or what. Um, we've got a couple of feature film and a short film, but yeah, I just been working on the last few weeks so i'm just kind of learning uh but it's fun stuff and i'm involved in writing the script and um uh doing illustrations on uh both and, I, and i'm just having fun that's so, right yeah I, I can't say what exactly you know what the project is and i can't say much about it but sure yeah that's normal yeah absolutely we understand that well, Davey, I can't thank you enough for your time uh, you've given us for your stories. Really appreciate it. Uh, everybody's really enjoyed uh, our first episode. So I uh, appreciate you coming back and taking the time. Well, thanks. Thanks. Uh, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. So uh, hopefully you'll keep doing this and interviewing more people and keep the interest going. We'll do it. That brings to an end part two of our interview with Davey Fighton. Thanks to Davey for his time. Very generous with his time. Jeff, a lot of territory there. A lot of territory. A lot of, you know, I need the uh, Davey Fighton safety manual. Uh, it seems like there's <laughs> there's a lot of job hazard that he's that he's telling us about that uh, it's good to know. You know? If I ever it's get just... into programming animatronics. I'm going to keep all the tables away from them. I'm going to keep myself away from them. All Anybody, you know, if you see an animatronic with a sword, stay away. Just good stuff to know. Absolutely. it. You almost want to go in in full padding. Like you see those people <laughs> right. that train like German shepherds to be guard dogs yeah. or whatever. <laughs> just uh, padding down your arms, padding just all over your body. Because it sounds like it is a dangerous occupation. Yeah, you got to bring your own Garco or something to, you know, keep a, <laughs> no. keep guard on it. I don't know. Yeah, it, it does sound. <laughs> Who knows and, what danger Walt was in with when he was around Garco? We didn't even know. It's true. It's true. Oh, we thanks to Davey. I mean, we always appreciate these people spending hours and hours of their time telling us their stories. I mean, these stories are priceless and such an interesting view into 
you know, I feel like he is kind of, you know, rubs shoulders with all kinds of people like operations and Imagineers, which of which he was one animators, um, you know, ride operators. Uh, it's, it's just an interesting little uh, Venn diagram of the people he is uh, rubbing elbows with. Absolutely. When you think about all the disciplines that are involved with costuming and maintenance and the tech side of it and it you know it is it is a very varied field of people you come in contact with when you're in that job and so it was really interesting to hear you know um, all all of those different people that he had a chance to work alongside that's right. a lot of characters oh yeah oh yeah so thanks to davy for for that and uh, Michael, what is what's coming up next for us? Well, next up, we're uh, going to get a little energized. Going to keep it going with this Epcot thing. Talk a little bit about the universe of energy. It makes the world go around. That's what I hear. So they say it does. This is uh, yeah, a classic. Yeah, well, one of the epic opening day attractions at Epcot Center. And quite a bit to talk about there. A lot of innovative systems, a lot of, you know, high, high concept filmmaking, I guess mm-hmm. you would say. A lot of, a lot of tech in there. And so, yeah, there'd be a lot to talk about. One that lasted in some form uh, until very recently. So yeah. I know it was a survivor. At least yeah. uh, people can pretty well remember what the ride system was like even if they don't remember the original films they remember what that ride was like right and you know we always have our monthly live streams to look forward to michael if i wanted to see what these monthly live streams were about what how would i do this well the live stream is just yet another wonderful benefit for our patreon members Patreon members who sign up get early access to episodes, get a little packet of Progress City swag, get some extra content in their feeds, and of course, uh, get access to our monthly live stream where we watch rare video and see rare pictures and just have a fun time in the chat talking to everybody. And it's a good time. Good, clean fun. It is. It is. We always enjoy it. As we say, how, how would one sign up for this uh, Patreon? Well, they just need to go to patreon.com slash progress city USA and sign up. It's easy as pie. You get, uh, and, and now, you know, now that we've done it so long, we, you can view all the old live streams as well. So you've got more than 20 old live streams you can go back and watch. So that's a ton of content there. Uh, you've got the, extra audio that we've uploaded over the years. You've got all the documents there that I've scanned for the library. So patreon.com slash progress USA and check it out. You might have some fun. That's and right. It's tax deductible, which is the most fun yes, of all. Yes. Yes. Uh, thanks to all of our existing Patreons and just all of our patrons, Patreons. I don't know. Uh, Patreoneers perhaps, but uh, thanks to all your listeners. If you made it this far, why don't you drop us a line? You could email us, get in the mailbag. We haven't done the mailbag in a while. That's podcast at progresscityusa.com. 
We're also on Twitter. Michael's at Progress City USA. I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. You can even uh, go to your streaming platform of choice and leave us a nice review. I saw we had a, a new one up. And uh, it's always, it always nice to have those. That's nice. But uh, yeah, please be in touch with us. We love hearing from folks and getting feedback and and even sometimes getting stumped and having to go do more research. Yeah, that's always fun. Yeah. It's always fun to, you know, I, I like getting the prompt of what to talk about because that saves yes. us the mind, the mind power of having to figure out what to talk about. That's so right. uh, your, your prompts make it easier for us. So we appreciate it. Absolutely, they do. So we will continue on next episode with a uh, trip into uh, Epic's Lost, the world of petroleum and all kinds (laughs) of energy. The world primeval. The world primeval. And we will check out energy. Until then, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.